The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Um, I don't know if you have like a list of places that you've always wanted to live or always wanted to visit, or you have a list of places that you never wanted to live and you never want to visit. I have not ever gone through the trouble of making a list of all the places that I want to visit, but I have made a list of all the places that I would never visit. And at the top of that list is Arkansas. And part of it is that I don't feel like I need to go there. I grew up in Mississippi, and Mississippi is like, Mississippi and Arkansas might actually be cousins that got married. I'm not sure, but I know it's not illegal in either place. Um, So I've told people for years, like, if I were to ever, if you ever see me moving to Arkansas, um, you would know that if I moved to Arkansas, that was just the call of the Lord. There are just some places that I will not go of my own free will, Arkansas and Dallas. But I was in Arkansas. (laughs) So if you're from Arkansas, I apologize, but neither one of us is there right now, and I think that says something. But over the last several years, uh, two of my closest friends have moved to Arkansas. Um, One to become a professor at a university and one leads a church there. And as they were leaving Texas going to Arkansas, um, I said to them, I love you, good luck. You need to know, I will never come visit you. Uh, But because of the Lord, the last few years, I have made a couple of trips to Arkansas I remember our first trip was just a trip through Arkansas. Our family was driving um, from Texas to Cincinnati. I was speaking at a conference up there. And as soon as we got into Arkansas, I said, we're gonna get through this place as fast as we can. And the girls were in the back. It's like, we gotta stop and go to the potty. I was like, you just gotta hold it until we get to the other side. (laughs) But we stopped there and saw some friends. And so um, there are a couple of talks that I've done over the last five years. One is called Healing of the Nations and the other is called A Thousand Pianos that just churches and conferences invite me to come do uh, oftentimes, especially when they are dealing in their church or in their community or at a conference about difference and race. And so I went to Arkansas three weeks ago and they had asked me to deliver this content, A Thousand Pianos. And I have done both of those talks so many times, and my children have been dragged along to those talks so many times. Like they could literally give the talks themselves, and I know this because making fun of me at home, they have tried. (laughs) And so, okay, we go, and I'm in Arkansas, and um, I'm doing a thousand pianos. And a thousand pianos is this talk about difference about ethnic differences and racial differences, but not just that, about economic differences and social differences, um, cultural differences, right and left politics and how that plays into what we think is moral and immoral, um, how we organize our lives. But the part that most people hear is the part about race. That's the part they always want to talk about. So I was doing a thousand pianos in Arkansas about three weeks ago. And the response that I got from this was unlike any that I'd ever had anywhere before. 
Like after our, the first worship gathering that Sunday morning, um, people lined up to come and talk to me about it and share their stories. And they were in tears and people handed me notes and told me all about their history and where they were from. And I thought, well, maybe it's just this coincidence, right? That the weekend that I was there just happened to be the anniversary of the Supreme Court's Brown versus the Board of Education decision, which found that school segregation was unconstitutional. And while that was true everywhere, I was in Little Rock, Arkansas. And in Little Rock, Arkansas is this high school, Little Rock Central. And so some of you will remember and some of you know from history that when Little Rock Central High School was desegregated, there were nine students, the Little Rock Nine, who integrated that school. And it was a firestorm, one of the flashpoints in the civil rights movement. And there was a lot of back and forth and challenges and the National Guard had to be called out. And if you've ever been there, I know some of you have, I met a young woman uh, in the nine o'clock service who actually went to Central High School. It is an absolutely massive school, absolutely massive. When it was built, it was the most expensive high school in the country. And so it got all of this attention and so they were so against school integration that the school board in Little Rock decided that they would just cancel school for everybody for the whole year. Teachers didn't work, students get, didn't go to school. And that weekend when I was in Arkansas, I met a wonderful woman, her name is Caroline. This is a picture of Caroline. And Caroline comes up to me and says, I wanted you to know that I'm a part of the lost class of Little Rock High School. She was a senior in the high school that year. And so she never got to graduate, never got to walk because they canceled and shut down school. And it was so great to meet her and hear her stories. But my youngest daughter, Kate, this last school year, had, did a project, this big project for school on the Little Rock Nine. And I was like, oh, man, I wish I'd known you in February. We could have just flown you down for my daughter's show and tell. That would have been so awesome. <laughs> but even listening to her story, um, that wasn't the most poignant story that I heard in Little Rock that weekend. Like, not too long after her, a guy came down, this is an older white guy, and he said, Sean, I remember those days really well. Um, I was a teenager living in South Carolina. And when all that was going on, my dad and the men from the church, our church decided that if a black family were to show up at our church, we would direct them to the black church down the street. And if they were to show up and we were in the middle of worship, worship had already started already, then our pastor would get up and end service immediately and we'd be done. And that was our, that was our policy. And he said he was so bothered by that, he went back and he asked his mom and he said, um, didn't you teach me a song when I was little? Jesus loves the little children red and yellow, black and white. And she told him, she said, well, son, 
Um, if any black people show up at our church, they're just here to stir up trouble. And so because I've spent the last five years um, writing a lot about race and traveling to conferences and churches and talking a lot about race, I hear a lot of stories around that. But what I find most interesting about all of the stories that I hear, what's most powerful to me about all the stories that I hear is that we are still telling these stories. Like this is still a thing. This is still a reality. Like, like people who are seniors at Little Rock High School, those people are still alive. And I know for some of us, when we see that grainy footage, when we're in history class or when we see it on the news in some retrospective, that seems like it was ancient history, but those people are still alive and kicking. And what's surprising about that is that in all of the time in human history, especially all the time in Christian history, that we aren't any better at dealing with this. Because Christian people, people who follow Jesus, we have been dealing with this since the start of the church. So when you open your Bible and you thumb your way to the New Testament, the biggest issue in the church is the church. And what they're trying to figure out is on what basis are people in and what basis are people out because you have two groups of people coming together and calling themselves Christians. Like you've got Jewish people and they've always been God's people, but now you have all of these new Gentile Christians. And what is written on almost every page of the New Testament, they are dealing with this question. It's in every one of Paul's letters. How are Jews and Gentiles supposed to live and worship together? It's the central question of the New Testament. How are people who are racially dif different and culturally different and ethnically different, how are they supposed to live together? So the biggest issue in the church is the issue of handling difference. And how do Christians become the kind of people who know the differences between the differences that make a difference and the differences that don't make a difference. And we have been talking about this for 2,000 years. And we're not any better at it. And the reason that we're not any better at it is because it's really hard It's really hard. Let me tell you what you do every time you walk into a room where people are already in it. Every one of us does the same thing. When you walk into a room with people who are already in it, you scan the room for people who are like you who are most like you. It's a cognitive bias that everyone has and everyone already has. And the reason that we do it is because finding other people who are already like you is just easier. It's just easy. 
And lurking under the skin of that cognitive bias that we all have is a deeply held belief that we have never acknowledged before. And it's this, the world would be a better place if more people were like me. If more people thought like me, they valued what I valued, they voted like me, they thought the same things were important as I think are important, the world would be a better place if everybody was like me. Now, we would never say that out loud, but we say it in our choice of friends, where we spend our money, what we don't spend our money on, where we go to church, who we hang out with. It was one of the first things that the first Christians understood about the nature of life. But what they also quickly understood was basing the world, judging the world on what was preferable for them was a really small way to inhabit God's really big message. So Ecclesia, if you've been around for the last four weeks, you know that we've been in a series on the Celtic way of evangelism. And we've been looking at uh, St. Patrick and how St. Patrick evangelized Ireland. And so if you've been around, you've probably, you've heard the story already. Patrick as a boy, as a teenager is kidnapped in England. He's taken to Ireland as a slave. He escapes, finds his way back to England, becomes a priest. And at age 44, makes his way with a group of people back to Ireland to evangelize Ireland. And what's remarkable about that is like, it's not as if Patrick was the first person ever to go out and evangelize anyone. But Patrick decided to do it completely differently because what the Roman church did, what the Roman wing of the church did at the time is that they had become, they had become overwhelmed with issues of power and wealth and status and government. And they had come to believe that they were smarter than everyone else and more sophisticated than everyone else. And the everyday word for people who think that they are smarter than everyone and more sophisticated than everyone and better than everyone and that the world would be better if more people were like us, the everyday word for that is superiority. They just thought they were superior. As a matter of fact, they came to believe that there were some people who were so second class that they were unreachable with the gospel. Like they're not even gonna try. So they came up with two prerequisites, two things that people had to be, to be worthy, to be worthwhile of pursuing with the story of Jesus. And the first thing they came up with was Latin, that they had to speak Latin. And if you didn't speak Latin, um, you weren't worthy of the gospel. We weren't going to worry with you. It was about language. But more importantly than that, you're going to speak my language. And we don't want to speak other languages. We don't want to learn other languages. If you want to know about Jesus, then you're going to have to speak Latin. And the second prerequisite they came up with 
was literacy. That you had to be literate, had to be able to know how to read. Now, if you're just trying to sell something or figure out or trying to disseminate a message, having the same language and being literate makes a whole lot of sense because it's going to be a lot easier. You're going to do this a lot faster if there's a common language that everybody has and we all know what we're saying when we're saying it. And it's going to be much easier to spread a message if you can not just tell it, but people can read it. So we want people to be literate. So it seems on one level, the idea that everybody speak Latin and everybody be able to read, that that would work. But this isn't the 21st century. This was a long time ago. And once you start thinking about who doesn't speak Latin and who's illiterate, who doesn't speak Latin and who's illiterate? Poor people. People from African nations people for whom the culture didn't consider worth educating, like women, people from under or less developed countries. Those were all the people that didn't speak Latin and weren't literate. Matter of fact, when the Roman wing looked at Ireland, they called the Irish barbarians. They were second class. So in Patrick's world, before you could become a follower of Jesus, you had to be literate and you had to speak Latin. And so part of what we want to get inside of today, like for you right now, what do you think someone else should become before they become a Christian? Because you've got something. You've got some idea. This is what people ought to do before they come to Jesus. And maybe if it's not that, you have a Jesus and. Like it's okay to have Jesus and you need this other stuff. So a friend of mine, Brian, was an English professor for a good part of his career. And so where he taught, um, there was this quad on their campus and it was like a lot of campuses where people would just kind of gather and debate and shout. And there was a guy who was there all the time, Brian says, literally on a soapbox with a megaphone telling people about Jesus. And it was always the same thing, like, this is why you're evil and you're going to burn in hell and fire and brimstone, that whole bit. And Brian would talk to him from time to time, say, do you think that this is effective? Is it working at all? And he says, I'm going to just preach my message. Well, Brian goes on sabbatical for a semester. And he comes back and he sees in the same place, the same school, in the same quads, the same guy on the same soapbox. And he's still shouting. But now, he's not shouting about Jesus, he's shouting Republican politics and why everybody should become a Republican and why Democrats were bad. And so Brian asked him, he said, hey, um, when I was here before, you were, you were preaching about Jesus. Now you're preaching Republican politics. Like, what changed? And Brian says, the guy told him, well, um, we figured out that if we could get people to become Republicans, then we could get them to become Christians. 
What do you think someone should become before they come to Jesus? And this isn't a small thing because this is the very thing that happens in the opening pages of Scripture in the opening days of the church. Because what happens after Jesus ascends is that you've got all of these disciples, all of these apostles, and they're going out to the world and they are actually telling everyone two different messages. And Paul and Barnabas and Peter, they have one message, but there are this other group of people and they've got this other message. And essentially what's happening is Paul and Barnabas are going, they're telling people, you need to come to Jesus. This is Jesus who died and was resurrected, that the God of Israel has been vindicated through Jesus Christ. There are a lot of gods out there, but only this God got up from the dead. So we think you ought to follow this one. But there's a whole other message. And what's happening is like what always happens when you've got one group of people giving two different messages. You've got everyone confused and you've got to figure it out. So Luke tells us in the book of Acts what the church did, how they figured out how to tell the differences between the differences that make a difference and the differences that don't make a difference. So in Acts 15, Luke tells a story starting this way. He says, when certain Judeans came with this teaching, unless you are circumcised according to Mosaic custom, you cannot be saved. So yeah, 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 we got this message about Jesus, um, and I know that you're coming to Jesus, but we got some news for you. Um, gentlemen, if you want to come to Jesus, um, there's a little procedure that we need you to have. Um, don't worry about the anesthetic. It's going to be good. You're going to go down to the rabbi. He's got some rocks he rubs together, makes them real sharp. It's great. And unless you do this, you cannot be saved. Luke says, Paul and Barnabas argued against this teaching and debated with the Judeans vehemently. So the church selected several people, including Paul and Barnabas, to travel to Jerusalem to dialogue about the issue with the apostles and elders there. The church sent them on their way. They passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, stopping to report to the groups of believers there that outsiders were now being converted. So on their way to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas decide we're going to do a little PR campaign on our way. And we're going to let everybody know that as we're going, that, that con outsiders are being converted. And so if this thing doesn't go our way, when we get down to Jerusalem, we'll have a whole bunch of people who have our back and say, well, you know, outsiders are being converted. And Luke says, this brought great joy to them all. Upon arrival in Jerusalem, the church, the apostles, and the elders welcomed them warmly, and they reported all they had seen God do. They just give this report of everything that God is doing. But there were some believers present who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees. They stood up and asserted, this is not acceptable. These people must be circumcised and we must require them to keep the whole Mosaic law. So you get these Pharisees that stand up 
And so this is really remarkable because you remember the Pharisees from the gospel and they're always the ones giving Jesus trouble and questioning Jesus. Well, since the resurrection, some of these Pharisees have become believers in Jesus and now, now they are part of the new Christian church. And they, came and sa- they come and say, if someone's going to be a follower of the king of the Jews, then that person must be a Jew. They must do things the way that Jews do things. They must follow all of our customs. If someone wants to be a follower of Jesus, they need to become a Jew first. So Paul, Barnabas, what we need you to do is all of these churches that you've been planting, all the people that you've talked with, we need you to go back and tell those people that they need to have a religious experience that's like our religious experience. They need to value what we value. They need to think what we think. They need to love who we love. They need to have the enemies that we have. They need to adopt our story and do things the way that we do. And then once they have done that, then they can follow Jesus. When they meet all of our requirements, all of our prerequisites, and the temptation here is to be really judgy and harsh about these Pharisees, but if you've been a follower of Jesus for like more than five minutes, You've done this to somebody. Well, I don't think, I don't think a Christian would dress like that. I don't think they would talk like that. I don't, I don't think a Christian would make that little money. I don't think a Christian would make that much money. I don't think a Christian would support that agenda. I don't think a Christian would if they really want to follow Jesus, they would do it the way that I would do it. They don't sound like a Christian to me. They need to do some other stuff first. Luke continues with the story. He says, the apostles and elders met privately to discuss how this issue should be resolved. There was a lot of debate, and finally Peter stood up. You remember Peter, Peter from the Gospels, Peter's always flubbing things up, he's always getting it wrong, but Peter is the one who preaches on the day of Pentecost, and for the first part of the book of Acts, Peter is the spokesperson for the church. He's a leader in the church, and so what he says matters. And Peter says, (coughs) my brothers, You all know that in the early days of our movement, God decided that I should be the one through whom the first outsiders would hear the good news and become believers. God knows the human heart and he showed approval of their hearts by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did for us in cleansing their hearts by faith God has made no distinction between them and us. Peter says God's made no distinction. 
which is a really big thing for Peter to say because he just learned this himself like five chapters ago. Like Peter has this vision and God tells him, I want you to go and uh, meet this man named Cornelius. But Cornelius is a Gentile and Peter says, I can't go to Cornelius' house because he's a Gentile and I'm going to go there and they're going to have pork and a bunch of other stuff that I can't eat. And I don't want to go because I don't want to be around unclean things and asked to do unclean things. And so God keeps pestering him. Peter finally ends up at Cornelius' house and he has this experience with Cornelius. And it's at the end of that, that Peter says for the first time what he echoes here. But Peter says in Acts 10, he says, it's clear to me now, God shows no favoritism. Which for a lot of us, is the worst thing that we've heard today because we really like the idea of being God's favorite. And we're God's favorite because we went to the thing that nobody else went to and we gave the money more than everybody else did and we served at the place and we showed up for the thing and we did all the rules and we followed everything and we did everything right, we should obviously be God's favorite because we did all the stuff. Peter says, God has made no distinction. And you might want to consider this because Peter says, what we have seen is evidence, not of them following our rules, of them living like us, but what we have seen is the Holy Spirit at work. And what if these people that are in your life, what if they don't look like you think they ought to look? Their lifestyle doesn't match the lifestyle you think they ought to have. But there's evidence of the Holy Spirit. There's fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness. You want to know if someone is a follower of Jesus? Look for the Spirit. Peter has more to say. He continues, he says, so it makes no sense that some of you are testing God by burdening his disciples with a load that neither our forefathers nor we have been able to carry. No, we believe that we will be liberated through the grace of the Lord Jesus. They also will be rescued in the same way. There was silence among them while Barnabas and Paul reported all the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among 
outsiders. This is amazing. Paul and Barnabas, they've already said what God has done and they've still got more to say. But Peter says, you've got this wrong because you keep making this about you and them. And when you do that, you are not only burdening them, you are testing God. You're testing God. So Peter says his piece and there's a little murmur in the room and people are saying, well, you know, this is Peter and, you know, he was a screw up until like five minutes ago. Should we really listen to him? There's another apostle in the room. His name is James. And this is James who is the leader of the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem church is probably entirely Jewish, but this isn't just any James and any church leader. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who writes the book of James. And can you imagine like what it would be like to be the brother of Jesus? Why can't you be more like your brother? (laughs) James didn't have anything to gain. His church is all Jewish. And this is what he says. He says, my brothers hear me. Simon Peter reminded us how God first included outsiders in his favor, taking people from among them for his name. This resonates with the words of the prophets. After this, I will return and rebuild the house of David, which has fallen into ruins. From its wreckage, I will rebuild it. So all the nations, nations, the Greek word is ethnos. It's the word we get ethnicities from. So all the nations may seek the eternal one, including every person among the outsiders who has been called by my name. This is the word of the Lord who has been revealing these things since ancient times. So here's my counsel. We should not burden these outsiders who are turning to God. We should instead write a letter instructing them to abstain from four things. First, things associated with idol worship. Second, sexual immorality. Third, food killed by strangling. And fourth, blood. My reasons for these four exceptions is that in every city there are Jewish communities where for generations the laws of Moses have been proclaimed on every Sabbath. Moses is read in synagogues everywhere. So James says, we should not burden outsiders who are coming to God. So we're going to ask for four things. And you could spend the rest of your life reading and studying about why these four things are really important and all of the implications of it. But James basically says this. um, We're not going to participate in idol worship. We're going to have one God. Abstain from sexual immorality. And the last two where they're really important, um, don't be a jerk 
to other people. Because all of these communities where Moses has been read, like these things are really important to people, don't let your religious practice, don't let the freedom in your religious practice, don't be a jerk to other people. Care about their experience. And that's what he says. No idol worship. Kind of like thou shalt have no other gods before me. Abstain from sexual immorality. You want to say more about that, James? Clear that? No. Don't be a jerk. And I know that a lot of us believe, and maybe we were raised and taught this, that our experience of faith, our religious experience, is something like Olympic figure skating where you get extra points for degree of difficulty. But James says we should not burden other people coming to Christ. So this Jerusalem council, they send a letter. And there, there are a lot of letters in the New Testament. People send letters all the time. And most of the time for us, it's a one-way conversation. We know that the letter was written and the letter was sent. We never know what happened to it or if anyone responded to it. But for this one, we know the end of the story. So in verse 30, this is what Luke tells us. He says, so the men were sent to Antioch. When they arrived, they gathered the community together and read the letter. The community rejoiced at the resolution to the controversy. They rejoiced because the church had come to realize the differences between the differences that make a difference and the differences that don't make a difference. And what's fascinating to me is that James and the Jewish Christians, they probably practiced the same things that they always practice. They never quit being Jews. They kept doing all the stuff and their families were doing the stuff and their children were doing the stuff. They just said, you don't have to do my stuff. You don't have to do my stuff. Like, like some of you know me pretty well. You know that I get up at 4.45 or 5 just about every morning. I have quiet time in the morning. It would be, how many of you are ready to sign up for that? And it's not the kind of thing that I can say that everyone should do. And I love that time every day in the word and praying, but it's from God, but it's for me. And you don't have to do my stuff. You don't have to become what I think you should become before. And if there's ever a day to celebrate that liberating fact it is today, because every one of us have people in our lives, friends, family, coworkers, bosses, students, who we think they need to become something else first. And on this Pentecost Sunday, where we celebrate the proclamation of the gospel 
and tongues descending in flames on Pentecost where everyone from all across the known world who had streamed into Jerusalem heard the message of Jesus for the first time in their own language. It's today that we celebrate that there is nothing else that people have to become first. There's nothing else that you have to become first. Because Jesus came 2,000 years ago and said to me and said to you that in a world where life is just hard, my yoke is easy. So my prayer for you is that the people that God has brought into your path, the people that you meet and encounter every day, that you would be the vessel for them to rejoice because God has set the condition that they can be unburdened. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.